you have your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21 this morning. The passage is also printed for you in your bulletin. It will be on the screen behind me as well. And if you want a Bible, there should be a pew Bible somewhere in front of you. So as you're turning to that passage, I'll tell you a quick story. I, uh, growing up, uh, I loved baseball. And I always wanted to be a catcher, though I'm pretty tall and that was never going to happen. But I was fascinated with the catcher position, primarily because of the equipment, I think. (laughs) I remember when I was eight years old, that's what I got for my birthday. I got the shin guards, the face mask, the chest protector. I had the, you know, the special glove. Uh, But I was never going to be a catcher. But because I was fascinated with that position... My hero growing up was a catcher in the major leagues by the name of Gary Carter. Some of you might remember Gary Carter. Some of you probably don't. He recently died of uh, cancer. But Gary Carter, for those of you that don't know who that is, out of all the people in the Hall of Fame, the major league, the baseball Hall of Fame, there's only 13 catchers in the Hall of Fame. Gary Carter is one of them. I loved him so much that in 1986, my parents took me to New York City to watch the Mets play and to watch Gary Carter, my hero. And that was the year they won the World Series. Fast forward uh, 10 years to uh, 1996, Susie, my wife, we were dating at the time. She was playing tennis at Sanford University. And we were dating, and I remember talking to her on the phone, and she says, yeah, we've got this new teammate, and it's this girl by the name of Christy Carter. And yeah, you know, I think her dad plays in the major leagues and whatever. I've never heard of him. I said, what did you just say? (laughs) She said, yeah. And I said, his name wouldn't happen to be Gary Carter. She said, yeah, that's it. Well, I totally have a come apart. And... I vowed from that point on never to miss one of her tennis matches home and away. I was determined that I was going to meet my hero, Gary Carter. And one day, walking upon the Sanford tennis match, there he was. If you remember, Gary Carter had that big curly hair, you know. There he was sitting in a lawn chair up next to the fence, and I was trying to get up the courage because I... Part of me, I didn't want to be that guy, you know, (laughs) but part of me, I couldn't pass this opportunity up. And so I went up, I said, Mr. Carter, my name's Jason, you were one of my childhood heroes, and I just wanted to say, hey, I'm dating Susie, she plays with your daughter, and he says, pull up a chair. He gets a chair out of his truck, brings it, sits it down beside him, and we spend an hour, we didn't watch the tennis match, sorry, Susie. Uh, (laughs) We, we talked, he talked with me for, I'm a nobody, he's a somebody, and he talked to me for an hour and a half about his career, and I asked all the detailed questions, you know, about his career, and he's telling me all the behind the scenes kind of stuff, and about, he wasn't in the Hall of Fame at this point, but he had a desire to be in the Hall of Fame, and then the, the match was over, and he gave me uh, like three or four baseball cards that he signed and that he signed for me and he gives them to me and the match is over and everyone's going to dinner with their families and Susie and I are walking and she's got her tennis racket over her shoulder and we're walking away and I hear this voice behind us and 
Gary Carter says, would you like to go to dinner with me and my family? And I said, of course not. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I said, yeah, <laughs> where can we meet you? And we met at Outback down in Wildwood. I don't know if you remember, it's still there, down in Wildwood, right down on Lakeshore. And uh, it was shocking, and it was totally unexpected. A nobody like me having dinner with a somebody like Gary Carter. And people were coming up to the table and getting his autograph. I mean, it was a huge deal. I'm having dinner with Gary Carter. Well, as unexpected and as shocking as that is, in Luke chapter 2, there's something that even is more unexpected and more shocking than that happens. The God of the universe, the greatest somebody, becomes a nobody by taking on flesh and becoming a man and coming into the world in order to rescue nobodies like us. That's the Christmas story in a nutshell. Let's just say the benediction and go home, but we won't. Let's read Luke chapter 2, and I think you'll see what I mean. This is God's word. Starting in verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. And saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those to whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and let us see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angels before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning to seek your help. We need you to take this familiar story 
and we need you to make it new and make it fresh and to apply it to our lives and to our hearts in new ways. Lord, I pray that we would be changed by this story in the same way we see these shepherds were changed. Lord, be with us. As Patrick prayed, we've got lots of different places that we're coming from this morning, and we need a word from you. We need you to meet us where we're at, and I pray that you would do that through this passage uh, this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This morning, we're obviously looking at the Christmas story. It's a very famous story, and it's a passage that's probably very familiar to most of you in this room, arguably the most famous passage in all of the Bible. And as I was studying for this passage this week, um, I really wished that it would be um, we were reading this passage or hearing this passage for the first time. And the reason why is because it is so familiar, and I think because of that, we have a lot to overcome this morning, a lot to overcome in order to really see the glory and the beauty and the goodness of our God that is shown to us in this passage this morning. And so I pray that God would do that through His Spirit. Very clearly, if you look at the passage, it's about Jesus, as all passages are. This is very clearly about the birth of Jesus. This is about Christmas. That's what we celebrate. God becoming man and coming into the world. And so three things I want us to look at Uh, concerning Christmas this morning. The fact of Christmas, secondly, the good news of Christmas, and thirdly, the ramifications of Christmas. So the fact, the good news, and the ramifications. Let's look at number one, the fact of Christmas. Look at verses one through six with me. You don't have to flip there, but at the beginning of Luke's gospel, earlier in chapter one, Luke writes, he says that he is writing so that we might have certainty that the things that he is writing are true. Some of you this morning, perhaps you're here and you're really struggling with what you think about Christianity. And maybe you look at a passage like this and you just kind of almost laugh it off thinking, how do we know that this story that Luke is giving us here isn't just some nice story that he's making up in order to advance the cause of Christianity? Well, there's a couple of reasons in our text Uh, that that's not the case. And number one is notice that Luke doesn't start this account by simply saying once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. That's not the way he begins. No, Luke starts, that's when you get all the crazy names, Augustus and Quirinius. He's founding this, grounding this passage in historical record. You see, Luke writes the gospel and his gospel would have been passed around while the eyewitnesses would still have been alive. And so it's as if Luke is saying this in these, in these first few verses. It's as if Luke is saying, hey, remember when Augustus uh, required everyone from the empire to go and to get registered? Remember that? And remember at that time, Quirinius was the governor. And so it's Luke's way of saying, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm putting this story in verifiable historical facts. This is not a metaphor. This really happened. Jesus came in real space and in real time. But we also need to recognize how counterproductive this birth account is. So think about it. One of the common 
reactions people have to Christianity or the ways people dismiss Jesus is they say, look, can you really trust the Bible? I mean, think about it. You know, it's written by Christians, and Christians like Luke are simply making this up, creating their own agenda. It's biased. They, want, they are wanting to use stories like this in order to advance the cause and to help their movement. But that really doesn't make any sense if you think about this passage just for a moment. If you wanted to advance your cause and simply draw more people in and get more people to buy into your movement, you wouldn't make something like this up because it doesn't make any sense. We're not even going to get into the virgin birth thing this morning, but look at simply at verse 8 in our passage. Why would you use shepherds to be your first eyewitnesses to the birth of the Messiah? Many of you have probably heard this before in uh, Christmas sermons, but Mary and Joseph, they were, in, they were in a lower class socially. They were considered peasants. But below them, with the exception of lepers, there was no one lower than the shepherds. They were the lowest class of men in Israel. And because of their jobs, they couldn't go to worship because they were considered unclean. And they were considered so untrustworthy. They weren't, were not trustworthy, and so they couldn't even give testimony in court. Think about that. Couldn't even give testimony in court. The lowest of the low. And so if you were making up a story and you wanted it to be believable, the last people that you would choose as the first eyewitnesses, they can't give testimony in court, remember? <laughs> the last people you would choose would be the shepherds. It doesn't make it believable. It actually hurts its believability. And so the only plausible explanation is that Luke put this here because this really happened in real space, in real time. Here's my point. Jesus is more important than you think he is this morning. Luke is saying here, it's claiming as historical fact that God entered into the world 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus. And he says earlier in his gospel, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered these stories to us about Jesus. Eyewitnesses have delivered these stories about Jesus. Think about the things that you absorb every single day that you don't blink an eye with. The news, things you're learning in school about World history, we absorb without blinking an eye as fact. And when you take into account the actual data and the magnitude of Jesus' claims, it is big, friends. It is so big that you can't simply just write it off. It is so big that it determines and declares that you investigate and explore it. And if you're here this morning and you're investigating Christianity, we're so glad you're here. We want this to be a church, a place where you can come and safely explore the truth claims of Christianity and figure out what you believe about Jesus in the Bible. Secondly, so not only does, is Christmas fact, the first thing we learned, the fact of Christmas, but secondly, let's look at the good news of Christmas. So what did the angels say on that Christmas night to the shepherds when they were tending their flock in the field. Look at verses 9 through 13. Do not fear, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
The good news, we're going to talk about tonight more about what it is, but in summary, the good news is this. The Bible says that you and I were born sinners, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. The Bible says that we were born helpless, unable to save ourselves, and the good news of Christmas is that God didn't forget you, but he actually took on flesh and came down into the world to rescue sinners like us. That's Christmas, but that's the good news that the angels are announcing. For unto you a Savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. But what I want to talk about for a moment is who is it for? Who's the good news for? Look at verse 10. All people. But very specifically, look at verse 11. Unto you a child is given. Who's the you in this passage? The you is the shepherds. And now fill in everything I said about the shepherds from point one. And when you do that, this is scandalous, my friends. The angels come, or the God sends tells the angels, go down and announce to the shepherds the good news, think about this, that I'm coming down into the world and taking on flesh, and and I will be coming through this child, Jesus. Can you imagine the reaction from the shepherds or from the angels? Are you kidding me? You mean you're going to announce you're coming into the world through these lowly people, the shepherds, the lowest of the low. We don't even get their names in this story. See, the good news, the news is proclaimed first to them, to the shepherds. It's proclaimed first to the people who can't even pretend to get their act together. Who can't even pretend to earn God's favor and love for them. The good news of Christmas is that God has come down into the world for you, and that can mean a lot of things that we could talk about, but, simp- but very specifically, what that means is that you do not have to keep trying to earn God's love and favor. God came to you. Christianity, you've heard me say this a hundred times, you're going to hear me say it a thousand more. Christianity is not about doing, it's about being. Christianity is about what Jesus has done for you, and that is radically different to the way, the way I grew up thinking about Christianity and the way most people think about Christianity. Typically, they think about, we think about Christianity like this. God will save you, but, but if you do certain things, and if you speak a certain way, And if you dress a certain way and get your act together, then God will save you. And friends, that is burdensome. That is impossible to keep up. You cannot consistently keep that up. And what it ends up leading to, it ends up leading to you maybe doing it really well and becoming a Pharisee, or it leads you to being burning burning out, hating God, and having nothing to do with Him whatsoever. Maybe that's you this morning. You know what the Christmas story says? The Christmas story this morning is good news for the weary soul that has been trying to please God because the Christmas story is come to me. This is God saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest for your souls. Christmas story is stop. I came down to you. 
Stop trying to make your way up to me. That's good news. But the news is even better. Because look at where the Savior can be found. Look at verse 16. In Bethlehem in a manger is where the shepherds are told to go. And think about that for just a second. Mary and Joseph, there was no room on the, in the end. And so many scholars believe they ended up in a cave. A cave. A cave where animals are kept. And they place Jesus in a manger. And when we think about a manger, we think of a nice carved piece of wood that we put in our nativity scenes. Friends, the manger was a feeding trough. It was a feed bowl. It was a dog bowl. That's where they placed Jesus. And think about the shepherds. Remember, they're at the lowest point on the social ladder. And this is the one place that they could go. They couldn't get in an inn. They wouldn't be allowed to step foot in an inn because they were so lowly. And this was one place where they were allowed to go. And when we, they went to that cave and they smelled the manure and saw the animals and saw Jesus lying there, God in the flesh was there in a cave in a dog bowl. And when they got there, they saw this baby that wasn't like Caesar's baby, but it was like one of their babies. And then they saw the mom, Mary, and it wasn't like one of Caesar's daughters. It was someone that could have been like one of their daughters. Why is that so important? What's the point? What's the so what? Well, the so what of the Christmas story is that this is good news for all people. The Messiah is available to everyone. Unto the shepherds comes Jesus the Messiah. Unto Jews and Gentiles comes Jesus the Messiah. Unto lepers comes Jesus the Messiah. Unto the drug dealer in the shady parts of Birmingham comes Jesus the Messiah. To drug purchasers in over-the-mountain Birmingham comes Jesus the Messiah. To the elderly lying on their deathbed comes Jesus the Messiah. To the prostitutes and to the sinners and the drug addicts and the failures and the burnouts and everyone in between comes Jesus the Messiah. Comes Jesus is born to you, the Savior that you need. Everyone can reach the dog bowl. Jesus is for everyone. And so wherever you are this morning and whatever it is that you've done, the call of Christmas is to come to Jesus. Come and see Jesus the Messiah. The Savior is born. The one that you've been looking for your whole life. Lastly, the ramifications of Christmas. Think about the manger scene and think about who the people are on this evening, Christmas night, that are interacting with one another. I've already mentioned the shepherds and we won't go into that again, but they're there and they're the lowest of the low. But who else is there? Well, look at verse 13. Angels are there. 
Suddenly, there was this angel, and and then a multitude of heavenly hosts joined this angel. And when we think of this scene, we typically think of sky choir. (laughs) Angels with wings in the sky holding a big banner that says, Peace on Earth. We have this manger scene, this Fisher-Price manger scene, and on the top of it, there's an angel, and you press down, and it lights up and makes this noise and plays music. That's the way we typically think of this scene in our mind's eye. We typically hear heavenly host and we think sky choir. But in the Old Testament, the word host meant troops. It meant soldiers. It meant armies. And so instead of sky choir, peace on earth, holding a banner, we need to think of a fire warrior standing in pitch dark country darkness, not city darkness. If you live in the country, country darkness is different than city darkness. Country darkness, fire angel, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a thousands and thousands of these soldiers, these troops are surrounding the shepherds, and they're singing glory to God in the highest. This is speculation, but it's kind of funny. One commentator said, how many angels do you think were there? And he responded, and he said, I think they all came. We don't know, but it makes sense because this is one of the biggest events in the history of the world because God takes on flesh and comes in the person of Jesus after a long, long wait. So when you start thinking about the angels that way, you realize very quickly why the shepherds were filled with great fear. So shepherds are there, angels are there, and then wise men, we know, it's not in this passage, but if In Matthew's account from Matthew 2, there's this group called the wise men, and they were the intellectuals of the day. They were the smart people, the scientists. They understood the stars. And you know what every single one of them do once they get into the presence of a baby? When's the last time you've been to the hospital and see someone worshiping a baby? Bowing down. You know what these people do, the wise men and the angels and the shepherds? When they get into the presence of this baby... Jesus, they fall on their face and they worship. They're obsessed with Jesus. And Jesus, and here's the point, the thing that's bringing all these different types of people together, wise men and shepherd and angels, is Jesus. Jesus lying there on cold straw, crying, is already, before he even can walk or talk, is already creating a community of belonging. He's already creating a unity among people. See, the thing, friends, that brings unity and brings people together from all walks of life is not a unity event. And it's not a program. The thing that creates a community of belonging on this earth, the only thing I would argue that can do it is Jesus. Lots of you are probably familiar with CrossFit. And, or other workout programs like CrossFit. It's a workout program that has stormed the nation, so much so that others like it have popped up. And there's been many programs or uh, articles that have been written on CrossFit. And one of the things they say is the secret sauce of CrossFit is community. That it actually, when you step foot in a CrossFit gym, you feel like you belong. People would go so far as to say they have more community at something like CrossFit that they do, than they do within their own family, than they do in their workplace, or that they do 
in the local church. And you might say, that is crazy. That's insane. Why would you say, well, why would you say such a thing? But it makes total sense, doesn't it? Because you see, in CrossFit, you have the millionaire CEO who's actually best friends and actually looks up to the 19-year-old high school dropout who makes minimum wage, and he looks up to him and he's friends with him because the 19-year-old can kill it on a CrossFit workout and do things with his body that he couldn't even think about doing. And both of those, the CEO millionaire and the 19-year-old dropout making minimum wage are both cheering on the soccer mom that is doing chin-ups on the pull-up bar. Everyone belongs because they're all united around a common thing. And you see what CrossFit has tapped into is the longing of the human soul, a place, a longing of belonging. Every single one of us have a longing deep down inside of us to belong, don't we? We long for a place where we can come as the CEO millionaire or we can come as the high school dropout or we can come as the soccer mom and we can be ourselves and feel like people accept us and feel like we belong. We all want that because we've all had experiences, haven't we, at the lunchroom table or in the workplace, in the workroom or in meetings or on our sports teams or in our churches where we feel like we don't belong. And it's a miserable, horrible feeling, isn't it, when we feel that way? Some of you this morning, Christmas uh, is hard for you because you don't feel like you belong even within your own family. You feel like even within your own family that you're not good enough for your mom and dad. Or you feel like you've never made uh, good enough grades for them to really love you and accept you. Or you feel like you've never been successful enough or accomplished enough. Friends, the church is to be the one place in the world where people can come, no matter who they are and what they've done, and they can belong. Why? Because we're not belonging around a workout program. (laughs) Because we are huddled up around a Savior that was born in a manger called Christ the Lord. Maybe this morning you're looking and you're saying, Jason, you have just put your finger on the one reason why I stopped going to church years ago. Because I didn't feel like I belonged. I walked in and I looked and all I saw was hypocrisy and snobbery and people being judgmental. And you know what? You're absolutely right. And I need you to forgive us for that. But I would also plead with you, don't look at us. Because you will always be sorely and deeply disappointed. My plea to you this morning is to look at Jesus. He's the reason why we're here. It's not because of our goodness. See, the church is to be the place, friends, that you belong in the place that we're trying to create here on Valleydale Road where you belong no matter what. A safe place where you can come with your questions and your doubts and you can come and you can be really needy. And you can come and you can work through your stuff. And you can cry and you can be happy and you can be joyful and you can be yourself and not be judged. And the question is, how in the world is that ha- does that happen? 
Look at the passage. How did it happen in this passage? They worshipped. They worshipped Jesus. They made much of him. They adored him. So then the question is, how in the world does worshipping Jesus create a community of belonging? It creates a community of belonging. It's because... Because when we worship Jesus and we go before him in his word and we come to this table in a minute, you realize very quickly that you belong not because of what you've done or haven't done, but you belong only by his grace through him. See, the one place that human beings didn't belong is the presence of God. And this passage is saying that God, this is Christmas, God came into a stable so that sinful people can be accepted in the one place that they shouldn't be. We are unacceptable, but God has made us acceptable through the birth of this baby. And it is true for those who put their faith in him alone. See, when you come before Jesus, friends, it reminds us that we're all the same. We're all the same Because Jesus levels the playing field. Friends, if you are a Christian this morning, it is only because Jesus came for you. It's not because you did anything to earn his favor. It's because he came after you. Because Jesus is dirty and shameful and poor. He became that in order to make you beautiful and rich. That's the message of Christmas. That's what we're celebrating here this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take this message and that you would drive it deep down into our hearts, this familiar message. Make it new to us so that we can sing like we've never sung before in great gratitude for what you have done for us. Please make that true through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.